Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I'm here to find out why Captain Willard uh, was told to terminate with extreme prejudice, uh, Colonel Kurtz. Uh, my name is Mark, and I've moved off the coffee onto water because I've had too much caffeine. Excellent stuff. Jittery so. mess. <laughs> so if you've not heard our first episode on Apocalypse Now, um, you might want to go back and listen to it. In that one, we went through kind of the... Uh, the general Vietnamese history from more or less the beginning of the state until 1955 or something like that, Uh, 54 maybe. So in this episode, we're talking again about Apocalypse Now, but uh, if you want to hear details on the film, what we're covering, etc., check out the first one. In this one, we're hoping to launch into, you know, the actual Vietnam War that is the central conflict in uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, so to start us out, we've talked a lot about Vietnam, a lot about France, Japan, Germany. We got to move over to the U.S. at this point. So, what is the world like in 1955, and in particular, what is happening over in the U.S. leading up to the start of the war, if we can call it even the start of the war? Yeah. So it, yeah, this is this is a difficult thing. Like, is it the start of the war? From whose perspective is it the start of the war? It's like, you know, when everyone talks about World War II and they say, oh, it starts in 1939, but if you ask a, Chi- a Chinese person, then that's not what they'll say, you know, because the war starts at different different points. This is um, this is an interesting one because we're we're in the, the sort of the early days of the Cold War, and the Cold War is really taking shape at this point to become the conflict that we're, we're now sort of familiar with. And what I mean by that is, Vietnam, the, the situation we've got where we, we've got a, a division along, is it the 17th parallel? I think, it, I think yeah. it's the 17th parallel. Yeah, yeah. So that separates the North from the South. The North being funded by um, the Soviet Union and the communist powers. So China and the Soviet Union. While the South is being funded um, by the American-led West. Um, and this, this is this sort of the, the second or third example that we can see in the world at this point. This is a couple of years after the end of the Korean War, which is very much, um, very very similar in a lot of ways in that uh, North Korea is being uh, uh, supported and funded and armed by uh, communist powers uh, like the Soviet Union and China, where, where South Korea is then being supported by, again, the uh, the American-led West. And I do keep saying the American-led West because I... I, I, I uh, I know it, our inclination is to say it's just the Americans. It isn't. You know, there, there, there's some level of support, at least from the British and the French and other allies um, throughout most of these conflicts. And throughout the Cold War, that's true to say as well. But it is principally the Americans, and that's because the, the, the Cold War essentially has established a situation where there's a, a bipolarity in the world between the, the, the Soviet Union, led by Russia, and uh, the United States, or the West, led by the United States. We're in a situation where there is political ideological clashes, but there's also a real threat that the world may actually end. Both powers at this point, or the Soviet Union is about to become a nuclear power. The United States is a nuclear power. It's, the only, of course, the only country that's ever used them in, in, in war. Um, you have uh, other countries that you, you may have expected to have some level of influence in this area, like like uh, Japan has been defeated militarily in World War Two, and is sort of redesigning itself into what we what we now 
understand as uh, uh, the Japanese culture. Um, but the, the, the overriding concern of most citizens, in certainly in the West and in the Soviet Union, is the standoff that now exists between the United States and the Soviet Union, the USSR. So we have this two we have this situation where there's two giant powers and they are using their influence um to sort of promote their own values in various theaters around the world one of which is Europe of course but Asia is also very much part of that. That's the context in which the Americans and the, the Soviet Union and the Chinese will understand um Vietnam and the Vietnam War. Now that's important because it's very much a a I, I would describe it as a sort of a foundational um, episode in, in the creation of the modern American culture. The Vietnam War leaves a massive psychological scar on, on the American psyche. Um, it destroys this the, the, the formerly understood sort of veil of invincibility that they might have felt having won World War II and having brought the Empire of Japan to its knees. And um, We're in a period where uh, as Michael mentioned in the previous episode, we're, we're in a period of what's called Truman Doctrine. And that's that's named after Harry Truman, who was the president of the US. And that doctrine basically is the Soviet what the Soviet Union nearly would describe as almost like a declaration of war, because Truman is essentially saying any country in the world that feels it's under threat of a communist occupation or a communist revolution will receive aid from the United States. So it's very blatantly stating the aim. The United States will intercede in the event that there is going to be a communist takeover of, of any kind of area and this is out of the us's fear of this so-called domino effect which was the theory that if it if communism took hold in one re- part of a region that it would eventually spread throughout very much so and remember as well this is the period of spies there's intelligence and counterintelligence and the cia is established and there's various equivalent organizations in different different countries and in the ussr and so on the United States are very fearful of the uh, Soviet Union's move towards the creation of their own atomic weapons. And that's obviously raises the scales, raises the stakes, rather. So that's the context in which in which American involvement in Vietnam uh, begins. And it's, uh, I mean, all of this, the this Truman Doctrine sounds, I'm stating the obvious, but it's very aggressive compared to American foreign policy up to this point. They were quite reticent to join World War Two. Um, or, or World War One, or World yeah. War One, and like even going back to their f- formative days when you know they signed a treaty with France, and then France was in revolution, and they were like, "Who do we help? What do we do? Yeah. We do nothing. We we're we're attending our own garden." And this is very much the opposite of that, right? Absolutely, uh, it's it's um, there. There is a. I mean, World War Two really is the turning point in in, in a lot of ways in, in terms of our understanding of America in the in in a modern sense because it it definitely goes from a country that certainly engaged in isolationism and, and always had an element of isolationism in their in their political thought to being hyper-interventionist and maybe being more along the lines of the America that, you know, the millennial generation will be familiar with, yeah. you know. Um, Vietnam, you might argue, is, is, is up until maybe the, the Iraq war is probably like the, the, the greatest example of interventionist policy from the, from the United States. But it's also a period in the U.S. where, I think it's I think it's important to say because it feeds into the the, the sort of the, the feeling, the tone, the atmosphere, and maybe even the culture that's set in the movie in the in, in the events of Apocalypse Now. The the fifties leading into the sixties and into the seventies is, is a period of extraordinary social upheaval in the United States. You have the election of uh, Kennedy, um, J- JFK, as we all know. 
Now that that's that doesn't seem like it's a, it's sort of a big deal, but for the culture in the U.S., this is the first time that a young, vibrant Catholic has become uh, the president of the U.S. So they're used to looking at the White House and seeing an old man sitting there with grey hair, sort of you know as his sort of grandfatherly sort of figure. And JFK is not that at all. He's like a celebrity president. He's he's much closer to. I don't want to say he's like Trump in terms of his policies, but you can see the sort of the the true. Uh, the true, the true point of, of their of the, the celebrification of oh of, yeah, just of the figures. Just watch Back to the Future, you know, right? You exactly, know all about it. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> so um, JFK comes in, and uh, he, he, there is an element, or there is a feeling, at least in some sections of the of the of the American culture, that a new day is dawn, and mm. you know, youth is coming into power, and um, this coincides with the civil rights movement. Where uh, you know people like Martin Luther King it starts to come to prominence, Malcolm X starts to come to prominence, and all in this time, this war is escalating and escalating and escalating. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. JFK's policy himself was was actually quite scaled down in terms of what we we think of the American involvement in in Vietnam. He was really more about uh, financially supporting the South Vietnamese for sure, training, arming, and it was uh, you know fifteen to 20,000 special forces, Green Berets, commandos, American commandos, who would, you know, like I said, train, but would maybe lead special operations. Quote-unquote advisors. Advisors, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, exactly. Now, this is, this. I mean, I know 15,000 sounds like a lot, but I mean, this is not the commitment of huge numbers of American troops. That kind of thing begins after his presidency. But remember the American psyche here. This is the president who's assassinated. But it's not just him who gets assassinated in the 60s. His brother is this is this gloriously famous figure who everyone says is going to sweep in. And he's even more charming and more intelligent than his brother. And then he's assassinated. Martin Luther King is assassinated. And Malcolm X is assassinated. And this all happens in the same period where Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, has taken over. He's sort of inherited the conflict. And unlike what maybe people might expect him to do, he, he, he escalates it. Johnson is is an interesting figure because obviously this is not a guy who thought he was ever going to be president or maybe he thought he might be president after Kennedy but he's an older guy he's more aligned with what an American president previously would have been like but there's a there is a difference with, with Johnson he's what they call a southern democrat now that's an interesting thing because they don't it's really a weird exist thing, yeah. they don't really exist in today well lesser he, spotted southern democrat yeah. yeah i mean i'm not saying the guy's better or rock but he, but he's he he's a texan and he's a democrat and he becomes president so he has a he has a sort of he's sort of crossing the divide in that sense he i, I would describe him as politically right wing but maybe not as right as some of the some of, some of the hawks mm. nevertheless under the johnson presidency the vietnam war massively massively escalates and that's the that's the um, that's the Vietnam War that you, you you know when you think of when you when you when you think of images maybe even of this film. That's uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, not his war, but that's the war that he sort of yeah. exasperates, and then leading on to his successor, which is Nixon. Yeah, and um, as you said, this war and what it becomes leaves an enormous scar on the psyche. But did we we mentioned Korea briefly, and we're not going to go into it in detail. But mm. they'd had relative success mm. with a similar kind of tactic, yeah, right? For sure. So. You must you must remember, like, so before World War Two, the United States is regarded as a sort of a uh, coming power. Like it's 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 not it's not the global player it now finds us. Within ten years, it becomes. It, it's not. It hasn't got a military infrastructure 
uh, that that's sort of the size of which we now think of. It was more an economic power. It was more of an economic and a cultural power. Yeah. You, you might you might say in the thir- in the in the forties, certainly certainly after the recovery of the the Wall Street crash. Mm. What actually turns it into the the incredible militaristic power it is is World War Two and its ability to leverage its natural resources and its manpower to just very very quickly become the dominant military in the world. After World War Two when when uh, uh, the Axis powers are defeated, the Americans find themselves in a, in a situation where they think, okay, we're now the big dog and we're in charge. And it's a strange thing for a country that came from overthrowing Im- imperialism and, and declaring a republic to suddenly be sort of the empire. Um, across, obviously across the aisle from it is, is, is the USSR, but the United States uh, military could be forgiven for thinking itself invincible. And when it goes into Korea, okay, it gets a bloody nose from, from China. I mean, it's not, they don't have it all their own way. But as you say, there is some success in the policy of defending South yeah. Korea. So you could understand, in some senses at least, the American, uh, the American concept of, well, we, we'll, just, we'll just stop the communists because that's what we do. And we, the, we, we, have the best, <laughs> we have the best everything, so we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, but it's not very effective, which I suppose is why we get into this escalation, right? Their usual, well, their, their 15,000 Green Berets or whatever, they're not solving the problem they're no they're, 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 it's it's just as mike was saying earlier it's just dramatically more complex than that and, and korea is not vietnam they're, yeah. they're just the whole context is completely different the reasons for fighting is different and you know north korea might have had its leaders but it doesn't have ho chi Minh. north korea has ho chi Minh, and, and, and it's, or north vietnam has the ho chi Minh, and, and that makes a huge huge difference and the vietnamese have just spent you know the guts of uh, 20 years getting rid of the Japanese and then the French, you know, in an extremely bloody war where they've honed their skills and know, l- have learned how to uh, carry out an effective guerrilla campaign. Yeah, there's know? military know-how on, on, a, on a level that maybe w- would take uh, the American military really a long time to come to terms with. It's also uh, not a, the kind of war they will have fought before. No. In, in in an interesting way, like I mean, I think if the British Empire was at its height now, it might have done better here. You think so? I I, I think I think in in the because they've been more used to dealing with yeah, tactics. that's 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 sort that's the, the sort of thing they will have fought before. At the same time, around just previous around, but around the same time, the British had success quelling an insurgency in Malay or Malaysia yeah. as well, so using you know t- certain tactics that may have worked in vietnam but as we see they didn't you know Count- uh, counterinsurgency type, yeah. type tactics yeah and as, i suppose the other thing as whilst you know the americans were wondering whether they were going to take up the baton from the french and uh, you know continue on this great war um like the the Vietnamese weren't doing nothing you know so from 1955 onwards um they essentially decided that the North Vietnamese said we, we're we going to reunify the country. Officially, there was going to be a democratic election to reunify the South and the North. But everyone, the Americans, first of all, didn't think that, they thought they'd lose it. They thought that the, uh, that they, that it would, that the Vietnamese would, the Vietnam, North Vietnamese would win it. Um, and the North Vietnamese believed that uh, the Americans would cheat, essentially. Mm. So no one really put much trust in this referendum so as soon as the ink was dry really on the geneva uh, accords ho chi minh uh, began preparing for an insurgency 
Um, so all during this time, during the JFK presidency, um, like Ho Chi Minh has set up, you know, what became what became known as the Viet Cong, officially the NLA, the NLF, the National Liberation Front. But and what that is supposed to be is an an insurgency, a communist insurgency in southern uh, southern Vietnam. And it's officially supposed to be independent of North Vietnam and the communist powers, but it, it takes its orders from Saigon. And they're very effective because the southern, uh, the southern Vietnamese government isn't able to control the supply routes. And this is where a very f- famous thing and a significant thing for the war comes in, this famous Ho Chi Minh Trail. And essentially... What this is, is the Vietnamese sent up a mass, set up a massive supply route running from North Vietnam to its immediate west into Cambodia and Laos. And basically, through the jungle, all the way down, they bypassed all the way down to, to South Vietnam. So they were able to supply an insurgency and um, nourish an insurgency in the South and it was very difficult for the southern um, Vietnamese on their own to actually counteract this, you know. So I think this is a major reason um, for the for the escalation as well, because the Americans are looking at this and they're like, Jesus, Ho Chi Minh and his uh, deputies, because at this stage Ho Chi Minh was getting on, um, are, you know, they, they if we don't do anything, they will take over southern Vietnam by force within a yeah. number of years you know and and there's very there's very much a case in the in the american context where there's 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 differing opinions on how to how to prosecute the war or whether whether or not they should prosecute it at all there is a a, a strange constitutional quirk in the u.s whereby the, a president can't declare war it has to be congress mm. and for you to get the congress to declare war on a on a politically instable situation or a you know a, a politically ideologically charged situation you need to control Congress and, and the Senate. And maybe Johnson doesn't actually control the Congress and, and the Senate all the time. And this is a guy who's not meant to be the president at all, remember. He's the, he's the vice president of JFK. Um, the Viet Cong end up actually shelling a US airbase. Right. And, and Johnson is pressured really, really heavily into sending troops, but he won't do it. He initially backs down. What they end up doing instead is something that's, that's uh, suggested by Henry Kissinger, which is the Operation Rolling Thunder, which I th- think you were going to talk about, Mick. Yeah, well, I suppose, first of all, their official excuse anyway, America's official excuse for the escalation was, and many people believe that this is a, was a false flag operation, but um, in 1964, so just in August 1964, a few months after JFK has died, essentially, all that turmoil uh, in America, the USS Maddox, which was just a, a, a ship, um, was apparently torpedoed by North Vietnamese boats. Now, this is, a lot of people believe this was complete bollocks, and it was just an excuse to allow Johnson to essentially commit far more forces uh, to Vietnam, and which he does. So this, uh, following this, Congress passed a resolution uh, called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which basically gives a blank check. Uh, it says to take all necessary measures, including the use of armed force, against any aggressor in the conflict. So basically, it's giving the U.S. government 
a, che- a blank check to go ahead and sort this situation out in Vietnam by whatever means possible. It's know? it's it's not a million miles different to how America gets into World War One. You know, where there's the, the bombing, the torpedoing of the US, of the Lusitania, the passenger liner, mm. and then and then suddenly that the death of of those American citizens hardens the Congress to finally say, okay, we're going there, we're get, we're getting in. This this Operation Rolling Thunder is a bombing campaign, but here's the thing about it. It's secret. Secret how? Nobody knows. The American public don't know about this. Right. They, they, they keep this out of the papers, even. Kissinger and and, and uh, Johnson, Nixon, all of these powerful po- political figures managed to actually keep this out of the public. Yeah, because within a few months, uh, he if, like within nine months, uh, there was this attack on this US ship, which gave him free reign to, yeah. to, to expand. In 65, so just a few months later, he sends in 50,000 US troops. Um, at the same time as Mark was chatting about, he brings in this Operation Roland Thunder in March 1965. And this is pretty horrific, as Mark was saying. The whole idea behind this was to target North Vietnam, but also the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So the reason Mark was saying this was all kept hush-hush is, first of all, horrific killing civilians, civilian deaths in North Vietnam, horrific. But as well as that, they're bombing Laos and Cambodia, which are neutral. Nothing yeah. to do with the war at all. Like, no? As far as they're concerned, these are independent neutral states and the US is indiscriminately bombing it right, without telling the, the public that's the goal to, to disrupt the this whole cheese supply, supply train yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and to discourage the north basically its activities mm. to try and break its will you know um and just to give you some context here there was seven and a half million tons that's the estimate of bombs dropped on Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam just in those few years. And that's compared to two and a quarter million in all of World War II. So this is a... this is Not a, by the US in World War II. In all all of, the, yeah. of World War yeah. II. So you're talking, you know, triple, you know, nearly, um, the amount of ammunition, but only on this small area. And obviously yeah. that's all the famous things we're seeing. Agent Orange to, you know, to remove the foliage from the forest so they could see underneath. Um... Uh, but it's also... What is Agent Orange for those who have no historical knowledge? Um, it's a horrible, horrible chemical that would basically... Um, re- obviously, the problem with this part of the world for the US is that there was no front line. Mm, so they're fighting yeah. an insurgency um, and they can't see their enemy a lot of the time because their enemy don't dress in uniform. Like the Viet Cong officially are an insurgency group, so they're just wearing civilian clothes you know what i mean uh, and the u.s wanted to see where all their hidden bases were obviously the Viet Cong set up massive tunnel networks and all this but one way to remove the forest because you know this part of the world is heavily forested especially cambodia Laos, mm. was just to drop this agent which basically removes all the vegetation um and it's a, ca- like a, it's a chemical weapon yes that's, that's that's what it is yeah yeah and uh, now horrific results with that for like deformities and health problems for after and all yeah. this stuff like yeah. it's it's really really bad anyone interested look look into it uh, enough to turn your stomach to be honest with you um but yeah so this operation rolling thunder like just the sheer amount of bombing you would think it, it shows how the u.s was trying to fight a conventional war against an unconventional enemy and we've seen that going back to Napoleon trying to fight the guerrillas in Spain uh, during the 
was it the Peninsula campaign, campaign yeah. you know, uh, many years ago. But we also see that in Ireland, the British trying to defeat the... Uh, an awful time trying to get the IRA out of Dublin and Cork. And it's yeah. very hard to, to fight an enemy you can't see and who refuses to play by your rules, you know. And I suppose that's one of the major reasons why, you know, they probably double down on the bombing. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's three million tons of, of bombs. Like dropped in in Laos, just Laos, mm. three million tons. I think it's like the most one, the most per capita bombed places. It's it's uh, it's just it's, <laughs> it's absolutely obscene. Terrible. Like to put it in context, like put it in World War Two context, when when Nazi Germany attacked Warsaw, there was twenty seven thousand tons of bombs dropped on yeah. Warsaw. I mean, we're talking about three million. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not. You know, this is crazy, crazy numbers. So there's a lot of bombing happening, happening through Operation Rolling Thunder. There's 50,000 more men deployed and none of it is really having the intended effect, right? Yeah, so. but also we say 50,000 at the beginning. That was just the start because by the mid-60s, uh, by 67, I think, um, you're talking of about a half a million US uh, combat yeah. troops and their allies. One big thing we often say, we often say US forces, but, you know, there was the Southern Vietnamese government and their army, the ARVN. Um, so, like, tons of Southern Vietnamese died horrifically. And as the war went on... Um, obviously and mounting casualties in the US the pressure to you know push this war to isolate it to Vietnam and limit US ca uh, casualties becomes even more and more yeah the, I mean the, the, the interesting thing is it, it's they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because the some people are of the opinion that it should be that one Michael just said we should isolate it and we should really only be funding the south and and uh, we shouldn't be sending U.S. troops. Other people are saying, no, we need to fully commit and actually fully declare war and really fully invade and send everything send everything there. Um, General Westmoreland at one point, <laughs> the losses are getting so bad that he, he, he asked for more men and they're like, well, how many more men do you want? 200,000. <laughs> like, you know, an insane, that, that's that's just an insane number of troops to be asking for when you, you've already committed a, a huge number. Robert McNamara, who's the Secretary of Defense, uh, he's basically like, no, we're, we're going to negotiate. This is, this, is, this is nonsense. Like, At the same time, I mean, there's 20,000 US soldiers dead uh, by, by, what, 1967, is it? And, and protests are springing up all over the US. Now, remember, it's the 60s, civil rights is happening, the president's been killed, yeah, or has, uh, the former president was assassinated. Civil rights leaders are getting assassinated. Yeah, yeah. it's awful. And uh, Operation Rolling Thunder, as you said, was secret for a start. But this amount of bombs, this amount of casualties, mm. and people being—are people drafted yet at this point? Or oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think. I don't think by '67 are they? Oh yeah, they're being. Drafted. Are they by '67? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, so there's by, there's the draft yeah. and there's draft dodging accordingly and mass protests. Uh, so sentiment is kind of not. Yeah. So and and also what always happens with it with a draft like this in in certain in Western countries anyway, what always happens is you know some people are more successful when they when it comes to dodging a draft than others like yeah. the wealthy like uh, you know. Donald Trump famously saying it's shin splints, you know, paying a doctor to say he was unwell. Allegedly, that's alleged now. I'm not, I'm not saying he did do that, but that's what's alleged. Whereas, uh, you know, maybe people who come from more uh, modest means, like John Kerry, he gets drafted or he, and he, go, he ends up serving three terms and gets his face wrecked. Um, I think Bill Clinton used the education route yeah, to get out of yeah, it. Yeah, there was all he sorts of He said he was in college. 
And Bush used the you know National Guard duty. Oh yeah, yeah. Which which Bush? Uh, George Bush uh, Junior Junior, junior. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. National w. Guard Junior to get out of this. Yeah, but he's, just he said I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an officer in the National Guard. I'm already in the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really same, same, yeah, same same. yeah, me too, George. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Speaking of the draft, not to get off topic for too long, but like it's interesting you should say it because like it was extremely unfair like the the wealthier you were the less oh, you, yeah. direct combat you saw i mean you if know? you were rich you weren't you weren't going to go into a combat unit no. even yeah. if you were draft you know you'd be like oh you're he's he's working as a fucking clerk and then general of the engineering corps <laughs> do you know what i mean well even so like as little as seven percent of draftees were from higher middle income families yeah. you know yeah. who, who saw combat Sorry, who saw and there was combat. a large percentage of African American troops who obviously were not able to get those cushy jobs, or you know, yeah. Able and to in da- fact, in 1965, in that one year, it almost it embarrassed the U.S. government because a quarter of the casualties were African Americans, mm. whereas in terms of the population of the states, what do they represent? About, between 10 and 15%, maybe. So it was obvious that a lot of people were getting out of it and that it was, wasn't was a fair draft, you know. Uh, for example, married men until 1965, I think, got away with going to the war. So all, you had like a 10% increase. Everyone's in getting married, yeah. Ma- adolescent right. marriages, <laughs> you know. Uh, people, uh, famously, they, they went abroad. They went to Canada. They went to Mexico. They went to Sweden as well to get away from nice the spot. war yeah yeah, yeah. exactly go but it, it's it's a it's a with with the just specifically with african-americans i mean it's in it's in the context of the 60s being the decade of civil rights and there's a there's a thing in the american culture the american psyche and i don't want to be too broad here but i'm going to be anyway um where they 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 sort of have a cultural belief that they're somehow you know the country of god's design you know but no, nothing shows that America is the work of men more than the death of the, of the black man, like you know, and and it, this is like horrifically showing it to the world that look at the numbers of African Americans who are being drafted versus the numbers that actually exist in the country. I mean, it's it's not something that can be escaped from or or or, or you know excused in any kind of sense, you know. Yeah, and I guess at the same time, obviously, we have, uh, you know, well, this I guess this would have been earlier, but Buddhists burning themselves to death in South Vietnam mm. as well, right? Yeah, like, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. The, the South Vietnamese government was extremely unpopular. Like, I think there was 12 different coup d'etat yeah, over yeah. a course few years. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're just one... with the French. <laughs> yeah, but just one the military junta being, being replaced yeah. in the other. And it, so it was an extreme... there was all sorts of weird, like, religious crackdowns and stuff by the different, the different uh, governments in the South... Like they were, like they 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 were already unpopular, and they just really drove their own unpopularity. So you can imagine if you're a guy in the, in the south, and and this this government is is hyper oppressive, and and maybe you know people who are Viet Cong, or you know people who are connected some way to the Viet Cong, and they're saying, well, we're actually trying to liberate you from this this foreign backed nonsense. Yeah, you can you can imagine the 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 drama and the chaos that that you're that would be in your life at that point. But I suppose what really broke. The U.S. will um, is the Tet Offensive, the famous Tet Offensive. So I suppose we could talk about that if you want for a little bit. Yeah, or... when was this? 1968? Are we on to that year now? Yeah, 1968. So uh, like up until this point, it's obviously just been escalation, escalation, escalation. Uh, there was even talk of the use of tactical nukes. 
even to solve this Tactical, problem. Yeah. yeah, I love putting that word in front of things. Yeah, to make, make it sound no good. Fucking sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> as as if if it's it, going it, to be limited in damage. If, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. The radiation will just stay in this one specific zone. That I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, the, the the motivation of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong behind this was they wanted a spectacular. They wanted to show the US that. You can throw as much uh, at us as you as you like. All your all your resources, your bombing, your troops, all that. But at any time, we can sow chaos. And at this stage, uh, Ho Chi Minh was kind of like a father figure. He didn't have a lot of influence. The main guy at this time was Lei Duan. I hope I pronounced that one all right. Um, and he was kind of head of the North Vietnamese uh, Politburo. And his idea basically was uh, a mass uprising. In this, in South Vietnam, um, all over the urban areas, and the idea would be that they, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong would um, spur this on, but then there would be a mass uprising of the people, and that this right. would overthrow the government. Now, that was it was a really good idea, you could say, but um, ultimately it wasn't successful in the way the North Vietnamese hoped. So there wasn't a massive uprising, but at the same time. Like, they just shocked the U.S. public. Up to this time, the U.S. public thought that they were making slow, steady progress. There was protests, obviously, but the official line was, "We're winning." Yeah, yeah. so Just give us more time. So th- this 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 is a this is a key problem. The television footage is contradicting the news media. Yeah, and not the just the news media; it's contradicting the president. It's contradicting Lyndon B. Johnson. Some of the soldiers that are recorded are contradicting all this information yeah. too, you know, and so the journalism. Y- you can imagine this is, the Tet Offensive is happening. Americans are wising up that what they're being told is not true. Um, like a lot of the soldiers who are being killed are African-Americans. And ahead of them, there was like the, obviously like the president and company would all know that it's going so badly right because yeah, like, there, there was a proper like suppression of information going out to the public so there would have been something that turned flipped that on its head yes and and the issue here is it's 1968 there's an election coming yeah and this is a problem uh, as, you, as you might imagine because the prosecution of a war the non-prosecution of war obviously is a serious thing for for who's going to win an election mm. so what you're going to have in, in in the election here is, is nixon is going to run again you can never get rid of this nixon fella he's going to well they do obviously eventually get rid of him but he's he's been hanging around for a while he's been hanging around since the 50s at this point this guy and he's going to run against this guy called uh, humphrey who's a who's a democrat now there's a there's a, a real real problem here because Nixon has a national security advisor called Henry Kissinger, and peace talks are are, are alleged to begin soon. So the Johnson's Johnson wants to negotiate a peace. He wants to ch- chill this whole thing out and get American troops out. That thereby helping maybe the Democrats perhaps win the next election. This was also cool just a uh, just to say this was one of the North's North Vietnam's motivations Absolutely. for the Tet offensive to put it in a strategic strong strategic yeah. position because mm. it was able to show essentially like they launched 80,000 uh, Viet Cong troops or uh, insurgents yep. in a hundred cities in the South. All attacking in, in, in a unified sense. And yeah, they so did the it on like a lunar holiday. You know, so that's why it's called the Tet Offensive. It was the, it was a lunar holiday, so there was an agreed truce 
So they did it. I was surprised. Mm. And now there was, the US apparently was warned that it was going to happen, but they didn't do anything to stop it. But this showed, anyway, just in terms of the context of the election, this showed that the Vietnamese weren't going to be easily defeated. So yeah. you were either going to support further escalation or... Or, yeah, you're going to negotiate a peace and, and the North Vietnamese are going to negotiate from a position of power, not as the little dog in the fight. Now, th- this this issue becomes really, really dramatic because um, the peace talks are scheduled, but Kissinger, now remember, he's an unelected official, gets in contact with the leader of the South Vietnamese and persuades him to uh, boycott the peace talks. Right. And he says, if you boycott the peace talks, you want, we want Nixon to win the election. Because if Nixon wins the election, we'll double down on the forces that are in, the state, that are in Vietnam, Vietnam and South Vietnam will win the war. So remind me, which, is he in the same political party as Nixon or what is Kissinger, the... Kissinger yeah, yeah. is, is, Kissinger's not either party, yeah, yeah. Is, but he, he's, he's Nixon's guy. He yeah. is a Republican type. He's this national yeah. security advisor. Yeah. Well, he becomes a national yeah. security advisor. He's not at this point because Nixon's not elected. Mm-hmm. So this is the whole point. Nixon uh, and True Kissinger is speaking with uh, the South Vietnamese leader. I think it's Chu, I think is his name at this point. So he, he's speaking with him. Now, that's illegal. Not, not only is that illegal, that's treason. Okay. You're not allowed to do that. You, you, a non-elected uh, leader can't secretly have talks with a U.S. ally in the, in the context on the of behalf of uh, on the behalf of you know of somebody who's not elected. Yeah. Uh, to discuss, like basically speaking, for the country. Yeah, mm. yeah. An unelected official, this guy Kissinger, who who you know, anyway, well, I, won't, I won't get too deep into him. But so so that's so that's going on at that point. Um, now that's that's. Uh, as I was saying, that could be that could be regarded as treason. Here's the thing: Johnson knows that's happened. He he actually, he actually is aware that this has gone on, but he doesn't do anything about it. And now you, there's lots of theories as to why he doesn't do anything about it. But remember, it's 1968. Martin Luther King has just been assassinated. There is civil yeah. unrest all over the place, and Johnson fears, or that's this what some people will say. Johnson fears that if he goes public with the idea that that the the uh, candidate for presidency has illegally tapped up the leader of South Vietnam at the same time that all the images are coming back about the Tet Offensive, you know, the Americans completely lose their minds societally. So he does nothing about it. So, Yeah. And I suppose the Nixon administration eventually comes in and he, like, Nixon got one on the back of de-escalation, I believe. Isn't that right, Mark? Like, was one of his things was that he, he wanted to, you know, reduce troop numbers and... Yeah. I suppose this was a policy then that they went through over the next few years. So from about, you know, from 1969 to 72, essentially, where they decided to localize it again, as we were saying earlier, Vietnamization of the conflict. And so basically over those three year period, um, the number of US troops went from like 550,000 down to about 69,000. So the writing was on the wall. The US is making this slow retreat. They're saying that they're going to, you know, enhance the South Vietnamese army, the ARVN, uh, to include or, or to, to boost them so they'd be able to protect themselves against the, the North. But is that really going to happen? Look at the, the momentums behind the communists in the North. Um, they have all the fire, firepower still coming from um, the Soviet Union and China. And, you know, the US is looking for an exit. So 
really by 1962, 19, or sorry, 1972, 1973, the US is looking to get out as quick as possible. Yeah, and what um, there was one point we jotted down earlier, my life, what was that about? Oh yeah, well it was just to, uh, an example of, I suppose, public opinion in the US, like why was the, the war effort not going to plan? And I suppose this was, as we mentioned, this was the first, one of the first, you know, televised wars in a lot of ways. You know, there was journalists were running all over Vietnam. They were picking up stories. They like they, they so everyone could kind of see what was happening. But there was actually a U.S. massacre at this place called My Lai in sixty, yeah, a couple years, of years, yeah. yeah. And about five hundred civilians were murdered by by the U.S. Army. Like there's no two ways of saying it, you know. Um, and this, I suppose, when the, when this information starts to come out, there's leaks with uh, I think it's called the Pentagon gone papers yeah. were leaked so basically the dirty face of the war is being re- being revealed to the u.s public and this is only further pushing them towards getting out of getting out of dodge as soon as possible yeah you know? it's an interesting thing as well because the, the uh, nixon's uh, policy of Viet- vietnamization of the of the war kissinger's against that actually he's 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 like no let's just keep bombing them into 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 oblivion so you've a weird sort of situation where the president and the now national security advisor don't agree on what the policy should be and they're not like kissinger's not quiet about the fact that he doesn't agree with what the policy should be and so does uh, nixon's starting to have a bit of a political problem with his own guy now um, so you, you've got a really weird situation in the US, but ultimately, this is leading to to seventy uh, three and, and and the US finally saying, okay, we're out. We just can't take it anymore. We're, yeah, we're they, out. Uh, and they famously, they, it's not like they were out uh, because they'd won. I feel like did they declare victory at some point? They love doing that. No, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> Funnily enough, they never actually declared war in Vietnam. Mm, it's, it's not, it, it was right. never. A, so they they do have the excuse of saying, well, we didn't we didn't lose this war, like, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. But I mean, like, yeah, look, they 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 left because there was a there was all of these internal disagreements about what to do. Their their hubris. And the fact that this, is this even a winnable war? No, it's not. The other thing I suppose is look look at Vietnam, look at its form. It's clearly Vietnam is, the Vietnamese have something to fight for. Um, it's their country, you know. Um, and as we're seeing in Ukraine uh, today, you know, if it's uh, if you have your own motivations, if you're not just a hired gun or sent there for some reason that your president told you, you know, if you actually can clearly see who the enemy is and you're part of an organization which on or off has been fighting for independence whether you're a communist or not but as the vietnamese have been fighting for independence for you know years at this stage you know it's they have the will to continue and the u.s does not essentially so we've basically gotten to the quote-unquote end of this not war from the (laughs) american perspective uh the paris peace accords 1973 the americans are basically leaving the conflict yeah so 1973 the paris peace accords the american uh, plan to uh, remove themselves from this from this horrific war it's funny because i always think uh, you know from 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 nixon's point of view he's probably thinking to himself yeah this will get me re-elected like i ended the vietnam war brilliant yeah, they love this. Like they're they're gonna love me. The, the, the public Kissinger gets a Nobel Peace Prize for this, by the way. For fuck's sake! Yeah. <laughs> what, so we hope he's we've, not listening. So we've, doubt ca- we've kind of alluded to it, and I did see. If a, you are listening, fuck you. <laughs> so Kissinger's still alive. He's ninety nine as uh, at the time of this recording. Uh, we've alluded to it, and I did see a book that says the trial of Henry Kissinger or whatever. So, but. 
you want to summarize why is that ridiculous that he got a peace prize? Well, it, it look, uh, um, I, I, I'll give you a, just a, a quick bio, I guess, about who the, who this fella is. So Henry Henry Kissinger is a naturalized U.S. citizen. He's actually born in Germany near Nuremberg. Um, he's born to a, a Jewish family. Why is that important? Well, it's important because he's born in twenty three and into war period, mm. and his family flee Germany. Um, in uh, 1938, just before the uh, Crystal Nacht, just before the, the, the period where they, when yeah. you know Nazi gangs went around smashing in Jewish shops and killing Jews and stuff. Um, so they, they emigrate. He ends up uh, living in Washington Heights, um, which is uh, in Manhattan. Um, also known from uh, the musical In the Heights by correct. Lin-Manuel Correct. It Miranda. is, in fact, at that very place. Yeah. Um, Coming in season four. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, so yeah, so he's there. 1942, uh, he joins the army. He's he is ideologically, um, he, look, he's, a, he's a man of Jewish extraction. At least I don't know if he's a practicing faithful guy, but um, he's a he's um, an enthusiastic soldier, let's say. And he fights in World War Two. Um, he gets a bronze star. I mean, he, and you don't get a bronze star for nothing. Like this, this this guy was you know brave. The whole time he's he's in the army and 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 afterwards he's always been sort of interested in foreign policy and you you imagine maybe his childhood experience trying to flee Nazi Germany would interest him in this kind of thing but anyway he becomes involved in the National Security Council in the U.S. Um, this is a this is in the in the period of the you know that I keep going on about in the sixties in the in the in the sort of the uh, the, uh, the that that decade of uh, tumult um so he he's a he's a guy who who puts forward uh, the bombing policy operation rolling thunder is his idea he um he seems to have no problem at all with the idea of bombing cambodia he thinks that's fine um he's the guy who keeps it out of the papers he uses his influence with the national security Sounds council like standard peace prize right dude stuff yeah <laughs> right dude uh rolling thunder i mean there's there's at least a hundred thousand dead in in Operation Roland Thunder yeah. that he that he just pretends didn't happen, um he's yeah. the guy who he's the guy who who uh, is alleged anyway to have uh, been in contact with the leader of South Korea, convinced him to not go to the peace talks. Do you mean South uh, or South South Vietnam? Vietnam sorry, uh, I keep doing that. Uh, South Vietnam convinced him to not go to the peace talks. So how much did that cost the world in terms of in terms of blood? Who knows? Um, he's also the guy who goes to China to uh, to sort of to, to sort of uh, convince Mao to meet Nixon. Mm. That's that's Kissinger's move. Um, he begins talks with the USSR on the limiting limiting of the weapons of mass destruction. All of this sounds like great stuff, but he's also doing things like, you know, paying money to have the head of other countries murdered and kidnapped and beaten and and you know all of this sort of what you might call extra legal uh, <laughs> kind of carry on Nixon and, and, stuff. Yeah, Nixon stuff. Yeah, and at the same time he 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 also threatens to overshadow Nixon. Type of stuff that would be the plot of a Call of Duty Black Ops game. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. mean, I mean, assassinating presidents. I mean, very much so. South yeah. American, very <laughs> much so. And and he's posi- he has himself sort of positioned in 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 in, in that he he's regarded as the uh, the voice of the Nixon um, uh, presidency when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, and it's for that reason that he gets the Nobel Prize because it, because he frames it like, oh well, I've ended the Vietnam War. Like, and, and in reality, like North Vietnam and uh, uh, you know they. They've no interest in the, in, the, in this fellow saying what's what. Like you know, they they're not going to be told they're not going to have their country. Like you just forget it. Like so, the the, the Americans pull out in uh, in seventy three with Kissinger's deal. I mean, Kissinger's still going to be knocking around for a long time. Like you said, he's still alive. Yeah, and he's still like bizarrely relied upon and spoken about in, in glowing terms by like by current U.S. leaders, which which is 
He's yeah. interviewed. You'd he'd pop oh, up mad. on in, in interviews still. Yeah, he's asked his opinion on things. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a quote from that Hitchens book. What, what he's, now, Hitchens famously hated history, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, I mean, it's the only time you'll, you'll hear him was speaking about an individual use the term hate. He's like, I hate him. He actually said it in the interview, you know. And he decided to write a book about him. Yeah, yeah, because he felt because uh, he loves hate. He felt he fe- well, he does love hate, yes. but he but he, he felt that this this was a. The, the fact that this hadn't been called out publicly yeah, and that yeah. this guy was still a public figure was was it was an unforgivable blemish on, on American culture. Like, so he, he said, uh, Kissinger should be prosecuted for war crimes, for crimes against humanity, and for offences against common or customary or international law, including conspiracy to commit murder, kidnap, and torture. So that that's the kind of figure. That Sounds like yeah. he'd be up in court in Strasbourg with Putin if things were a bit different. Well, if Hitchens had his way, that that mm-hmm. would have been. Now, now here, here's the, here's the thing. It's it's Kissinger, Kissinger's lawyers got in touch with Hitchens and, and threatened legal action. To which Hitchens replied, "Point out the thing that's not true," mm. and there was no trial. So I mean, it's not you know, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not without some evidence. Now, I'm not saying Kissinger did any of these things. I'm saying this is alleged of Kissinger that he did these things. But in any case, the, the US, uh, you know, they pulled their troops out um, beginning in 73. But that doesn't really end the war. That just ends the American involvement um, in the war. So, Mick, if you want to... Yeah, so, response. like, this, it goes on. Like, that's in 1973. Let's be honest, the... the, the the southern government doesn't last that long. Um, you know, as we were saying, the momentum's behind um, the v- North Vietnamese army and the Viet Cong at this stage, you know, um, and there's nothing to really stop them. So eventually, you know, there's fall of Saigon in um, April 1975. Uh, they go in, they take over, and that's where you see the big panicked, you know, similar to Afghanistan last year, you know, this panicked withdrawal of the last troops mm. out of Saigon. Yes, yeah, they were still knocking about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, there would have been um, advisors sure. and there would have been protection <laughs> around the embassy and yeah. all. Yeah, they still would have had some force there, but like their the days of half a million men being. Important, important to say at this point as well, Ho Chi Minh is, has died at this point, right? Ho Chi Minh he, has died. 69? Um, 68 or 69, yeah, I'd have okay. to check it, yeah. Um, he, so he died of a heart attack. Uh, will live on forever. To this day, if anyone ever visits Vietnam, this, this guy. Ho Chi Minh is a, City, right? Yeah, there's yeah. mausoleums to him. There's, you know, he's. He's just a national hero. Yeah, he's a, he's one of the titans of twentieth century history. Yeah, and like sure. he doesn't. We'd have to do another episode. He doesn't have a uh, you know a clean <laughs> babe, a he- as oh. Mark would say either. <laughs> like he he was a lot of Stalinist policies there too, you know, and a lot of repression and stuff like that. So, but that's for another day, I think, you know. Um, but yeah, moving on, I suppose from that, uh, like. That so is the war over the with the more, fall of Saigon? More or less, like Vietnam does do other stuff later. It it does actually invade Cambodia and it does do other things, but it eventually not relations are are normalized with the US. I think in terms of a in around nineteen ninety four. Yeah, it's like a long time um, for so, things to chill out. Yeah, yeah, um, but you know, the massive so. massive consequences to this war, and I suppose the death toll itself is is just horrific. You yeah, know? do you have some horrific numbers for us to? Yeah, well, I suppose, like, in total, North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese, because I suppose a lot of time they break them up as if, Mm. you know, but they're all Vietnamese people, you know, but you're approaching in just casualties in the war itself, you're you're approaching, like, uh, 1,300,000, 1,400,000 people, Mm. Mm. and obviously we had famine before that, and we had the Japanese, and you know what I mean? Like, this could go on forever. It's really bad. So, like, that's 
horrific. Um, the full estimate for the war is between two or three million. That's Max Hastings, one of the, the historians great I read historian, a book yeah. on, a great historian. Mm -hmm. That's what he reckons. About two or three million people over the period of 1945 to 75, so that 30-year period. Um, included then, apart from the Vietnamese, um, you would have had so two sorry, million... That's, that's Vietnamese That's Vietnamese are, army, just, oh, just soldiers. Even the two million is just soldiers? And to, no, two million civilians yeah, were yeah, killed. Right. Um, yeah. And about 58,000 uh, Americans. Americans, uh, and that's probably yeah. lowball. That's probably lowball. That's probably lowball. It's probably more. Like, either way, an immense cost, you know, in in terms of life and for what you can imagine. <laughs> you can, you because can, of Vietnam became, you know, communist anyway. You know, yeah, and you, you can uh, you can imagine being an American who opposed it, and and, and just seeing well, the, you didn't you didn't even win. They didn't you know they, they didn't they didn't achieve their gain their their aims at all. And fifty eight thousand American soldiers are dead, and countless Vietnamese and, Seven and, and Cambodians. Tons uh, of bombs later. Yeah, yeah, you know, hundreds of thousands of people getting killed in bombing campaigns. So you don't find out until years later. But um, like, it's easy to be wise after hindsight, I suppose. Yeah. You know, but and, and, for, <laughs> and for Nixon, for Nixon's presidency, I mean, he he would all he always would say, "Well, I inherited that war. I inherited the war. I didn't start that war. I inherited and I did this and I did." But if the thing with him and Kissinger talking to the South Korean uh, president is true. He prolonged the war, and he carried it. It was under it was his idea. Him and Kissinger with the bombing campaigns, and ultimately, as we all know, Nixon didn't didn't reap the benefit of ending the Vietnam he was War out anyway. In seventy four. Yeah, right? so, so I mean, the Watergate thing happens yeah. pretty soon afterwards, and and it, it's an interesting thing. And, and people you know, people will always say um, when Nixon when when he's uh, when he resigns the presidency, the only president to do so, he. He's replaced by Gerald Ford, and and people often say, "Well, Ford pardoned him, and that's a ridiculous thing to do." And why did he? It's actually the right thing for Ford to have done, and and the reason it's the right thing for Ford to have done is you have to remember the context of what's been going on. It's bad, really, really bad on the streets in American cities. The culture is suffering. He had to put an end to this, and the only way for him to put an end to it is to just pardon him and exile him, get him out of here. Finish him. Let's move on, and that is what happens with with, with the Amer with the American presidency. Had Ford uh, um, carried out a legal now, this is just an opinion, but had Ford carried out a, a legal challenge against Nixon, the thing could have dragged on for years and years, and they would never get over it. Like. Yeah, much like the war, like they were trying to exactly. move on. So if you're Gerald Ford, you have a hard choice there. So I, I always say I think I understand why he will have pardoned him. That's me assuming that's what his reasons were, of course, but you know. I don't think it's quite as black and white as some people. Yeah, or there could be too much information coming to light if uh, things were to go to court. Yeah, that might be bad yeah. for everyone, and maybe that's bad for yeah Ford and, and his crew mm. as well. Yeah, just my hypothetical there, but um, yeah. So I all of this I think puts into perspective what we said about you know it, it, the Vietnam War being a scar on the American people, obviously more of a scar on of course, like, Vietnam. I mean, like, yeah, this yeah, goes without course, saying, obviously. obviously um, yeah. But it is in an interesting kind of turning point in some regards as the the trajectory of the U.S. from mm. World War II, as we were talking about. And now we're kind of seeing how, yeah, the the end of an era in a sense, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I always wonder uh, to what extent does the, the American experience of Vietnam inform their strategic handling of the USSR? Because I, I always think of the USSR's attempted conquering of Afghanistan and the Americans funding 
the, the, the Mujahideen, the resistance. Yeah. And I wonder if they think, well, we're going to give them their Vietnam the fuckers. Like, we're going to get, you know what yeah. I mean? We're going to bleed them out now, you know? And I wonder, did that informal? And I probably did to some extent, anyway, some of the military thinking behind it, maybe, you know? And of course, that also did not work out great. Um, no, it wasn't no, brilliant. No. <laughs> but that's another episode. Um, so we we've discussed this is a, you know one of the most horrific periods of time really to be to be discussing on the podcast uh so hope but hopefully it's been enlightening in that i really do feel like this film apocalypse now is many people's touchstone to understand the vietnam war which is such a weird thing to say but i think it is because it captures that pointlessness of violence uh in a beautiful work of art uh, and we know all the pain of making that film, which kind of adds an air of mystery to yeah, it as well. Sure. It's just, it is an amazing film and it's, uh, it, it is what people think of. Like whenever there's references to the Vietnam War, like there's no way that this isn't pulled into the conversation culturally. Like if there's a f- f- reference in a film or, or whatever. So I think it's been a very interesting discussion, but are there any uh, things we want to touch on just as far as inaccuracies or criticism uh, of the film itself before we wrap uh, up here? A, f- a few things, I suppose, that kind of I looked over. I did a lot of reading for this one, and um, I suppose I, I was interested in, uh, there is this great scene where Lance, the famous surfer in the film, <laughs> wants to go, is being forced by the uh, Kilgori, the, the CEO we were talking about earlier, um, who is obsessed with surfing and never stops talking about it. And he famously says, Charlie, don't surf. And uh, this type of thing. And there was a, see- a scene in the film where, um, you know, the, the, you could see US soldiers surfing. You know, and it was actually a thing. There was actually a, a surfing kind of club set up for um, US soldiers there <laughs> at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, they weren't doing it in the middle of a field being, or a, a middle of a, a battle when they were being shelled, as you see in the film. Yeah. There's that great line. Oh, but what line. a great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, there's that great line. What is it? It's uh, it's safe to surf this beach because I say it is, you know, <laughs> um, even though the shells are falling all disaster, burning trees, everything around you, you know, but surf away. So that was one thing I did want to check out. So it is actually true, but obviously not in combat. Um, but yeah, inaccuracies, like the film is as we say a lot of the time in spirit i think it's it's fairly accurate towards you know in terms of the equipment used all that type Mm. of thing uh there is a few inaccuracies i suppose um and they are mainly down to the book that it was based on i'd say so for example you do have this great scene at the end of the movie near the end of the movie where willard has finally reached cambodia where uh, colonel kurtz is holed up and suddenly all these faceless shapes come out of the jungle and they start to fire arrows at them, you know? And I thought that that was... Now, that is in the book. There is, a, But the book is set in... In the 1800s. 1800s yeah. in the middle of the Congo. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, modern... This is relatively modern. Yeah. Um, these people in Cambodia, like, as we discussed, Indochina more broadly, as it was called, you know, these people had access to information. They had access to rifles, Technology, they had they, guns, they Kalashnikov. this kind of thing. It showed for me. It showed those. It tried tried to maybe show that these people were very primitive. You also see in the scenes where they, you know, kill a buffalo. Yeah. Uh, while Kurtz is being assassinated by Willard, you know that kind of thing. Well, Sacrifice just, just, all this. Just even like there's no were, need for any of it. Even what you, what you were saying I mean. earlier, like there isn't a Vietnamese character. There isn't in it, really yeah. any major character, you know. They're, they're portrayed, the, the people, the Vietnamese people are portrayed just 
extras get, getting massacred or attacking back or lobbing you know, a grenade, lobbing a grenade, a, yeah, a that, that, that kind, yeah. that kind of thing. Now I understand the movie can't be all things to all men, like, yeah. but 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 at the same time, but this is why we need to like figure out other films to cover, like yeah, the life exactly. of Ho Chi Minh or like these other yeah. bits and pieces from from history. But yeah, it is yeah. it is a. Uh, that's what we were touching on at the very start. Like it is a film about the Vietnam War, but it is the American perspective, uh, yeah, like, yeah, and, like, and experience. Yeah, and and, and it is it is specific to here's what's happening in this story rather than yeah. you know this is the this is the full of the war but there's definitely like a white savior thing as well because yes, he arrives to massively. the this encampment or if you haven't seen the film <laughs> go watch it but they arrive eventually to kurtz and he's become like this kind of god he's like a godlike character yeah. Yeah. A like dennis hopper's character says he's enlarged my mind that's yeah. the effect he had had on him. So he had this sort of all-encompassing effect on the people he touched, apparently. Yeah, know? but Dennis Hopper may be there, but they're mostly like these people who are painted as primitive natives yes. worshipping this white man, and they need another white man to come in and as finish him As soon as Willard kills Kurtz, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, they start uh, worshipping him, him Because yeah, he's yeah. the new white king, yeah. you know. So there is that kind of weirdness to it, I definitely agree and that, with that. And that, and that uh, you, you could maybe not forgive but you'd maybe understand that a little bit more in the context of the novel yes. in the 1800s in in congo versus if yeah, you, these if, people would have had kalashnikovs right like yes. they're the people <laughs> yeah like fighting these, the kalashnikov which was far better than the m16 yeah like, uh, I, 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 mean, rifle, I mean the, the vietnamese are not primitive like yeah, they're <laughs> they're you know like they're they're just not like yeah and so the, so that's that's that yeah that is these things they are a little bit jarring you know um but but in, they're so at the same time i'm like but it works as a movie though like yeah, yeah because, yeah, it's, myth, because the, it's very mythic you because know, the narrative works you know and it's just superimposing it onto 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 something that it just ill fits so you know. you know and and i suppose the other thing is that uh Viet, like there wasn't as like there there was dense jungle in vietnam but you know it, it was also heavily populated and heavily uh like agriculture was so so going along the river it looks like wilderness a lot of the time now the, there's the river that they're supposed to go be going down willard and lance and um his 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 other um his other fellow soldiers it's called the nung river mm-hmm. now this river that is one inaccuracy in the film this doesn't exist this nung river i was looking it up <laughs> apparently it's based on the mekong okay. and we can kind of work out that Kurtz was supposed supposed to have been in cambodia yeah no so they do they do south. end up in cambodia yeah so we can it. assume it was the mekong river um but yeah it's in terms of inaccuracies more in timeline there's that type of thing that often comes up in these films we see but in general um i think to show the psychological effects of war and the horrors of war because there is some scenes in it and and the futility of it there is one scene where they where there's utter chaos and the american corporal is explaining to willard i think that um every day they build a bridge and every day yeah, the 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 Viet Cong blow it up. There's a scene know? on the boat where they, where they come across uh, the, these women on the boat, and whatever, and they they order the guy inspect it. You have to inspect. Yeah, inspect that it. one really stuck with me. And, it's he, so and he jumps great. on, and and then and then the gunner, who was actually Lawrence Fishburne in an early role, he turns around with a machine gun, just blows them all away, and leaves one woman surviving. And then there's the idea that like, okay, we just massacred all these people, but one of them survives, so we got to take her with us. Like this whole thing, and and then Willard just stands up, just shoots her. Like, yeah, it's like. For him, it's like a it's like a psychological moment where he's just sort of accepted 
this is what this is what, this is what I do. This, this is, is the do. most yeah, easy thing to do. They had like a puppy in a box or something. Yeah, because they didn't know it was in the box. They were like, yeah. it's contraband. And it's just, there's, it's like, it's like a, yeah, yeah. an animal. Yeah. Like. He says himself, we'd cut them in half with a machine gun and then give them a Band-Aid. When yeah, talking exactly. about the Vietnamese. And yeah. I think that quote just shocked me. Like when yeah. I read it. Yeah. yeah, there's another one, great one about, what is it, trying to prosecute someone for murder here is what is the, you oh yeah right. so when he's he's tasked with the mission uh willard at the beginning of the film and he's talked about that the re officially why he's being sent there is that kurtz is, has murdered people apparently and is involved in all these rituals and all this type of thing uh, and he says uh, charging a man for murder in this place is like uh is like uh, handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Yeah, <laughs> and like, this environment we're describing, there's boom. no such thing as as murder, which yeah. is the yeah. scene you were saying. It's yeah. like this is just it's just every day. Get, get it just becomes every day uh, like normal. Yeah. You know, which is frightening. <laughs> yeah, but a great film. Um, and a horrible, film. horrible yeah. piece of history that uh, I'm I'm glad we've been able to dig into a little bit deeper because as I said at the start, like. I don't really know much. Like I mm. also learn through culture and especially, I know a lot of people get into very, very into military history. So in contrast, this has been a pretty broad overview, but even for, for me, it's like Vietnam war, what was happening there? Don't know because you hear it referenced growing up. I never really looked into it in, in that much detail. So I hope it's been uh, an interesting experience to, to go through some of this for, for you, dear listener. And if well. any of our listeners out there um, would like to kind of, Tell us what they think, you know, please feel free to tweet yeah. us or now, because we probably got some things wrong. I yeah. definitely did on the pronunciation, but you, I, I already told <laughs> oh, look, you that. You know, we're, we're, we're doing our best. Neither of us are great at the pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> you can, uh, but you can tweet at us at shows what you know. That's you, the letter you. Um, I did want to ask, so for sources for this, what do we, what can we recommend as far as things to, to pick up if you do want to dig a bit deeper into the topic? Uh, there's loads um, like this obviously yeah. uh, Mark like was said, even discussing well about studied, the, yeah. the Don Carlan podcast oh, the, recently yeah, the, the, yeah well I was but that was around World War 1 oh excuse me yeah, yeah so there is ton like out there there's just this is one of the most studied you know periods of Amer yeah. American and Cold War history yeah. out there Vietnamese as well so like there's tons but the ones I kind of jumped in because I didn't know anything about Vietnamese history I knew the French like had been there but that was about it Vague, you know? vaguely doing the french empire and uh, everything yeah. else i knew from movies so like what i i i decided to get a, a general history of modern vietnam by christopher gosha which is really really good um covers everything from the depths of the past to to, the, to up to the modern day uh which vietnam is actually doing quite well now if anybody's Good. interested yeah. to hear it. um so excellent book and ov obviously goes into uh, a lot of the human stories too which we didn't have time to cover here then in terms of the actual military aspect of it and that i found max hastings an epic tragedy vietnam 1945 to 75 that was brilliant i actually listened to that one highly recommend it but it's about like 38 hours uh, so bear that in mind we do put in work for these podcast <laughs> listeners all right you know um and then obviously heart of darkness if by uh, joseph conrad if you want to get more of an idea of the plot behind the film and what inspired it and the themes uh, of madness and all that type of thing. So yeah, they're they're my sources. What about you, Mark? You've yeah, I would I would just add the the book on Kissinger, the trial of Henry Kissinger by Christopher Hitchens. It's worth yeah. a read. Great stuff. So uh next time we'll be back with the finale of season 
Three. I was about to be like, which season are we on? Well, what, 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 Jeez, we're getting old, lads. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The finale of season three coming up. Um, but until then, I actually, speaking of the cultural reach of this, at one point I helped our uh, co-network friend Jim on his other podcast. <laughs> Just they say were doing, friend. Nah. <laughs> um, was helping our, our friend Jim um, with a special of theirs, a sort of comedy special where they needed a lighthearted version of This Is The End um, ah. for... for a joke uh, and I recorded it for him so instead of our usual outro music I'll just play you my version on ukulele of This Is The End um, excellent beautiful which by the way my my vocals on this were meant to be reference vocals for them to then sing the lyrics themselves except they didn't have time so this is the only <laughs> version that exists and I did not I didn't try my hardest but uh, I thought it would be an interesting ender anyway for, for this episode you're not an if not creative Jacob I could tell you that thanks very much Michael um, but for now that is the end of the reel cheers thanks very much this is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands Yeah.